This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Travis Dumsday, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Concordia University of Edmonton. His new book, Dispositionalism and the Metaphysics of Science, is just out from Cambridge University Press. Dispositionalism is the view that there are irreducible causal powers in nature that explain why objects behave as they do. To say that salt is soluble in water, for example, is to say that salt has the disposition to dissolve in water, and this disposition is understood as a real causal power of the salt. In his new book, Dumsday articulates a novel version of dispositionalism, which he calls nomic dispositionalism, and he considers its relation to a cross-section of fundamental debates and positions in the metaphysics of science. These include the nature of scientific laws, the possibility of knowledge about unobservable entities, and whether there is any fundamental material stuff. So the book doubles as a concise and easily accessible introduction to many of the core debates in the metaphysics of science, as well as a defense of an intriguing new view of dispositionalism. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Travis. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Gary. Thanks very much. So this is, you know, a great book. It, it's it's a nice, it's an excellent tour of the metaphysics of science besides being a defense of dispositionalism. So a lot of the, you know, I'd say pretty much all of the basic issues that arise in the metaphysics of science on you know, realism versus anti-realism and material composition and causality. Um, I think the only one that's not directly, I think, addressed may be reduction, although you do talk about emergence, so that's also important. So it's, um, it's, a, it's an excellent review of a lot of these issues before you actually get into the, the nitty-gritty of defending a particular um, position in some very unique and interesting ways. So before we begin to talk about particular topics um, within the book, um, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to philosophy and how you came to write the book. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I sort of became obsessed with philosophy pretty early on when I was in high school, in fact. And so professional trajectory was pretty clear from fairly early on. Um, 
Oh yeah, I you know I did my uh, undergrad, you know, a double major in philosophy and poli sci at uh, Carleton University in Canada. Uh, MA at Waterloo, and then I went to University of Calgary uh, for my PhD, where I worked with uh, Mark Arashevsky, philosophy of science. And uh, yeah, so philosophy of science has been my my main field of specialization. Uh, still that occupies a, a lot of my attention, but I work in a few other areas as well. I try to keep broad interests in a few different uh, a few different research areas going. Okay, um, so let's let's talk about dispositions, right? I mean, the that's the main idea of the book. Um, what's a disposition? You know, what is your dispositionalist view? Um, uh, yeah, just to start us off. Well, as you'd expect, a, a lot of these notions are, are um, contested. But uh, the way I like to think about dispositionalism, it's the affirmation that um, there are irreducible causal powers in nature. Um, where powers, I think, should be understood, at least initially, pretty broadly. So in my view, so most people think about dispositions in terms of dispositional properties, right? So we think about something like fragility. You know, a, a vase is fragile, and so that's one of its dispositional properties. Or you know, in fundamental physics, you might talk about mass or charge being dispositional properties, you know, because they're, they're causal powers that objects possess. Uh, but dispositionalism, uh, I think, has a broader scope. I think there are other ontological categories that uh, we can also attribute. We can also describe using powers language. So uh, in some parts of the book, I talk about how in the literature on ontic structural realism, for instance, there's ongoing discussion about uh, dispositional relations. You know, are there certain kinds of relations or structures that are inherently causally significant? Same thing with the notion of dispositional substances or objects. The notion that so so in other words, uh, disposition. The, the basic notion is an irreducible causal power, but power should be understood broadly as as sort of cross-cutting ontological categories. I think it's more than just uh, properties. Okay, and you you also mentioned a number of different varieties of of dispositionalism. Uh, could you like which is which is the one that you uh, support most or think is the strongest? Yeah, there are lots of different versions of dispositionalism and uh, internal debates within dispositionalism about how to, how best to understand the view. So, for instance, one debate that I talk about a couple of times in the book has to do with how uh, dispositionalism. Uh, is to be understood vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of properties. So for example, um, and again, property, although I, I tend to take a broader view, most people do talk about dispositions primarily in terms of properties. And so that that's reflected in this particular internal discussion. But one debate has to do with uh, the status of non-dispositional properties. So for instance, you know, think of something like shape, the, the shape squareness or something like this. At least at first glance, uh, shape doesn't seem to have any intrinsic causal import. It seems like we can distinguish between you know, a square shape and a kind of causal power. 
and so some people use shape uh, as a paradigm example of a non-dispositional property or what's sometimes called a categorical property. And so one of the debates within dispositionalism that, that I talk about in the book has to do with um, the status of non-dispositional properties. So some dispositionalists adopt what's called the mixed view, according to which um, some properties are irreducibly dispositional and some properties aren't. You know, some properties are, are, are just categorical, like shape, for instance, uh, or certain kinds of qualitative properties. So that's one uh, uh, stance one might take as a dispositionalist, right? You might say that you know some properties are dispositional, other properties aren't. The key thing, though, is that you know there are dispositions. Uh, another take on this, though, is kind of a much more hardcore view of dispositionalism that says that uh, all properties uh, fundamentally are dispositional. And so what we think of as categorical properties like shape or, or, or certain kinds of qualities, those are either reducible to dispositions or they're just not real at all. And that's called pan-dispositionalism. So we've got the mixed view that says, you know, powers are real, but so are categorical properties. You've got pan-dispositionalism that wants to say that you know, there's only powers, right? All properties are dispositional in nature. There's another very interesting uh, notion, a third view called the identity theory. Uh, this is defended by people like uh, John Heil, where the view is that um, all properties are both categorical and dispositional in nature. So they have both uh, categorical and dispositional identity conditions. So they're, they're kind of, some people describe this as a view that you know, properties are kind of two-sided. They've got a dispositional aspect and a categorical aspect. Um, that's a slightly tricky way of, of, of putting it, but that's how it's sometimes described. And finally, you've got a fourth major view called uh, neutral monism that says that um, in a way, properties are neither dispositional nor categorical. These are conceptual distinctions rather than uh, really ontological distinctions. So at bottom, uh, for, for neutral monists, uh, properties uh, are do have an intrinsic nature, and that intrinsic nature can be described accurately using categorical concepts or using dispositional concepts. But fundamentally, uh, properties themselves are, are neither dispositional nor categorical, ontologically. These are just uh, concepts that we, uh, we apply to them. Okay, and of these four, um, which is the one that you prefer? I very much prefer the, the first view, uh, the mixed view, yeah, that says that um, dispositions are real, but so are categorical properties, and we just we need both of these uh, categories as uh, irreducible features of nature. Okay, good. Um, so uh, we we need them. Um, what do we what do we mean need them for? Um, I, I guess that's you know there's a you know, since we're talking about the metaphysics of science and what science sort of needs things for, it's often for some sort of explanation um, uh, or um, in order to, as, as people in philosophy of science will say, to provide truth makers for particular claims in science. Um, could, you, could you say something about the role that 
dispositions um, or categorical, but the dispositions are supposed to play in science? Yeah. Uh, well, it's good that you brought in the, the truth maker uh, language. I, I think that's helpful here. In my view, the, the metaphysics of science, um, well, science itself is really about trying to uh, explain and predict the behavior of objects. And we want to know why things behave the way they do. Uh, and, and when we understand why they behave the way they do, you know, then we can predict their behavior. That, to me, is a, is a fundamental part of you know, the, the nature of the scientific project. So if that's what science, uh, if that's largely what science is about, trying to explain and predict the behavior of objects, uh, when we think about the metaphysics of science, that immediately raises uh, certain closely related questions. You know, what, what is the nature of an object? You know, what kind of substance ontology uh, should we be, be working with? Uh, especially with uh, fundamental physics, but then also this notion of uh, behavior and what explains the behavior of objects. And that's really where the dispositions uh, will come in, trying to account for uh, regular behavior of substances. Uh, and of course, there's, there's different ways you can try to do this in metaphysical terms. So um, one way to understand dispositionalism is by looking at some of its close competitors. So uh, dispositionalism, as we noted before, you know, this is a claim about the causal powers of objects. And so the dispositionalists will want to say uh, objects behave the way they do because they have certain intrinsic causal powers. And, you know, those powers can be stimulated in various ways, resulting in certain kinds of behavior. And so uh, the behavior of objects and in particular, their regular patterns of behavior can be explained in terms of their intrinsic causal powers. So if that's the dispositionalist view, what are the competitors claiming? Well, one major kind of competing theory here in terms of explaining the behavior of objects is what's sometimes called nomological necessitarianism. Nomological necessitarianism. This is the view that uh, laws of nature are real, irreducible um, factors in reality. Um, the nature of laws is understood somewhat differently by different advocates of this view, but one particularly uh, prominent version of this uh, that is defended by people like um, Tim Maudlin, for instance, is a kind of primitivist view of laws, according to which laws are uh, understood as abstract, transcendent entities that somehow play a governing role in nature. Uh, so the notion would be something like you've got um, abstract mathematical equations, like the equations, for instance, that describe uh, Newton's laws, like one example. And these abstract math mathematical equations, despite being abstract and so not really uh, concrete entities per se, despite being abstract, they somehow uh, manage to govern uh, the behavior of concrete entities in nature. And so that would be a competing view, whereby the behavior of objects is explained by reference to these transcendent, abstract governing principles, rather than uh, intrinsic powers of, of the relevant objects themselves. So nomological necessitarianism is a major competing view. It's one of the views that dispositionalism sort of has to contend with. And then a, a third major competing view is regularity theory. 
the sort of neo-Humean view, according to which um, there, there really is no deeper explanation as to why objects behave the way they do. Uh, the regular behavior of objects is just a primitive feature of nature that has no further deeper uh, explanation. So irregularities are there, they're real, but nothing further accounts for why they obtain. Okay. Um, so within that, it seems like um, the dispositionalist thinks that there are uh, there are regular that um, that the regularities that there are in nature, whether they count as law-like, I guess, or not, um, uh, can be explained. You know, unlike the regularity theorists, there there is more to say about them. Uh, but unlike the nomological necessitarianism, they don't want to say these are somehow abstract objects. Um, there's something in the objects themselves um, that explains why they behave the way they do. And the laws are something that are um, separate from the powers by which objects obey the laws. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the standard dispositionalist line on laws is that laws of nature, uh, properly conceived, uh, are uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive. So most dispositionalists want to say that um, what we think of as laws of nature are just um, accurate descriptions of how objects behave, you know, that, that we, can, we can summarize using mathematical equations. Um, but the behavior itself is just rooted in the powers of individual objects, right? So the, the, there's no laws that are independent of objects governing them. So laws for, for most dispositionalists are purely descriptive rather than prescriptive. Uh, whereas, you know, for the nomological necessitarian, uh, laws are uh, genuinely uh, governing prescriptive uh, of individual objects, independent of individual objects, and uh, govern those objects. Now, my own particular take on uh, dispositionalism is a little bit different on this particular issue, but that's how most dispositionalists would want to, um, uh, yeah, describe that that contrast. Okay, so yeah, so uh, on your view, um, your version of dispositionalism um, actually entails um, nomic realism. So could you explain that? Yeah, so far this has not proven to be a popular view, but I, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a little bit outside kind of dispositionalist um, orthodoxy, but uh, the, the motivation for this, so this, the view is roughly this, that um, if we understand laws of nature as, uh, again, the, the, this notion of you know, they're abstract entities that somehow play a governing role in the world. Uh, in my view, uh, dispositionalism actually entails uh, that some laws of nature are, are real in that sense, right? There are these abstract entities that play a governing role. And, and my, my argument for that in the book is that uh, uh, that it arises from the notion of ceteris paribus clauses uh, with, with, with respect to dispositions. So just to, to background this just for a moment, um, the, the standard dispositionalist uh, 
dispositions have uh, a sort of a, a tripartite identity conditions, right? So uh, um, a disposition is defined by, or it's it's, it's nature is is bound up with three components: uh, stimulus conditions, manifestation conditions, and ceteris paribus clauses. And all those three things together uh, constitute the, the identity of a particular uh, dispositional property. So, for example, if we think about something, um, so solubility is, is a commonly uh, used example. So think about the solubility of uh, salt. Um, so if you drop salt into water, it will dissolve, right? So that the stimulus condition there, so if we, so, so, so the power here is solubility. The object is salt. So if uh, if we apply a certain stimulus to the salt, namely we, we dunk it in water, uh, we're going to get a certain manifestation, namely that uh, the salt will, will dissolve. So part of what solubility is, is defined in terms of a stimulus, manifest, a stimulus condition uh, and a manifestation condition. But there's also this third component, ceteris paribus clauses. So, for example, in the case of salt, uh, we might say that yes, if you if you drop salt into water, it will dissolve, unless, uh, for instance, the salt is coated by some uh, you know protective gel, or you know you might list any number of conditions that might interfere with that normal uh, manifestation in the presence. So, Keter's paribus clauses are basically. Um, uh, there are sets of intervening conditions that might serve to prevent uh, the manifestation of a disposition uh, in the presence of its, of, of its normal stimulus. So most dispositionalists would say that uh, for any disposition we look at, its identity conditions involve three components, stimulus, manifestation, and the ceteris paribus clauses. So to bring this back to the issue of you know why I, I want to be both a dispositionalist and believe in laws of nature, my claim is that once we understand uh, a little bit more about the, the sort of deep ontology of ceteris paribus clauses, we'll recognize that they actually play the functional role of laws of nature. That ceteris paribus clauses. Are, uh, do serve uh, as abstract entities that play a governing role in nature, and they play that governing role by, again, being sort of integrated into the identity conditions of a disposition. Um, so, so how does that get back to the question of entailing nomic realism? Well, let's think back to our salt example. So, um, uh, I think that the clearest uh, cases of what I'm thinking of here involve uh, alien properties. So properties that are you know, metaphysically possible, but for whatever reason are not instantiated in our world. So let's think of uh, some arbitrary alien property. Um, call it um, glunk. And uh, the role of, of glunk is to uh, protect salt from being dissolved in water. Right, so if you've got this substance glunk and you, you append it to salt, it will stop the salt from being uh, dissolved. So let's assume for the sake of argument that glunk is a genuinely 
possible kind of entity and that it's got this kind of entity has the power to protect salt from uh, being dissolved in water. Now, if that really is uh, a possible natural kind that has that possible uh, causal power of you know preserving salt from dissolution, well then, uh, on my view, uh, among the actual Keteris Paribus clauses that figure in the identity conditions of real salt in our world, is a reference to you know, counterfactuals involving this alien natural kind. So salt as it exists in our world, uh, its Keteris Paribus clauses include, would include uh, reference to this uninstantiated natural kind and its uninstantiated causal powers. And that will then ground the counterfactual truth that you know, uh, in the presence of glunk, salt will not dissolve in water. Okay, um, which, which is itself a law, is that the idea? Yeah, so, so I think from there we can get to laws. So uh, if this is a genuine, genuine, so if reference to this abstract, uninstantiated natural kind and its powers is bound up with the actual identity conditions of real salt, right, because it figures in its Keteris Paribus clauses, then in a weird way, you do here have an uninstantiated, purely abstract entity that in an extended sense, at least, serves to govern the behavior of salt in our world. Govern it in the sense that, well, if this natural kind were instantiated, salt would no longer dissolve in water. So that meets the sort of basic criteria for lawhood, right? Because you've got an abstract entity, which is playing a governing role of entities in our world. Now, in this case, uh, it's it's sort of a, a governing in a very attenuated sense because the natural kind is uninstantiated. Um, but if it's a possible natural kind, I mean, you can imagine a chemist coming up with some substance like this, in which case, um, yeah, that Keteris Paribus clause would then uh, actually be realized in nature, and that abstract entity would then... Um, the truth sort of bound up with it would be uh, manifested in real physical interactions. So I think given, uh, given an understanding of laws as abstract entities that play a governing role, um, these uninstantiated universals that figure in Keteris Paribus clauses, they actually meet the criteria for lawhood. And if you're a dispositionalist, I think you should believe in Keteris Paribus clauses. And by extension, I think you should believe in these uh, uninstantiated abstract entities. So is the, is the criteria for lawhood just um, sort of, I don't know, providing the truth maker for a counterfactual? Yeah, that would be sufficient, I think. Uh, so in other words, even if the substance never gets realized and the counterfactual is never actually played out, um, the fact that that counterfactual is true and made true by this, you know, the abstract entities figuring, figuring in these Keteris Paribus clauses, um, that's enough to serve as at least um, you know, the, the basic criteria for lawhood. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there's a, like I mentioned before, there's a number of different topics um, that you discuss in relation to dispositionalism. Um, and the first, and I guess major one, is the laws of nature issue. Um, uh, second one that you talk about is uh, structural realism or ontic structural realism. Um, could you say a bit about um, the relationship between uh, that that other debate between realism and anti-realism, um, and then how your version of dispositionalism is related to that um, to that debate? Sure. Well, uh, those who might not be familiar with uh, ontic structural realism, uh, I'll just say a little bit about um, that first, and then we'll tie it back into, into positionalism. So, in in philosophy of science, you know, one of the the big long-standing debates is between realism versus anti-realism where scientific realism is basically the view that science properly aims at uh, achieving knowledge about uh, natural entities in general, including unobservable entities. Right? So if you're a scientific realist, you think part of the job of physics, for instance, is to discover the uh, you know, existence in nature and laws that govern uh, various unobservable fundamental particles. And you're, you'll be inclined to think that, um, you know, with sufficient evidence, we can, we can, you know, believe pretty confidently in the actual reality of these, uh, these unobservable entities and the, uh, uh, the laws that govern them. So that's the scientific uh, realist uh, view. The scientific anti-realist will take an opposite stance and say that, Science, properly speaking, aims at uh, making accurate predictions about uh, observable entities, and it's not the job of science to pronounce about the nature or reality of unobservable entities. Uh, it's fine to make reference to unobservable entities or theorize about them for purposes of well, theory development and formulating uh, models and uh, being able to make uh, predictive uh, yeah, accurate predictive models. But the, uh, according to the anti-realist, uh, the scientists, properly speaking, should not really believe in unobservable fundamental particles, for instance. Um, fine to talk about them, it's fine to theorize about them, but scientific knowledge is really restricted to the realm of the observable. So that's uh, the debate between scientific realism and scientific anti-realism. Uh, now, there emerged... Well, there were versions of structural realism earlier in uh, 19th and early 20th century, but it, it got revived as kind of an active, an actively discussed point of view in philosophy of science uh, by John Worrell in the, the late 80s. And as initially formulated by Worrell, uh, structural realism is intended to be a kind of uh, moderate compromise between scientific realism and scientific so structural realism, as initially uh, formulated by Worrell, is the idea that um, scientific anti-realism has 
part of the story right, insofar as science does not really get knowledge of the existence and nature of unobservable objects. And so science, properly speaking, should not really affirm anything about the existence of or properties of electrons, for example. Um, but that does not mean that science should be uh, barred from all knowledge of the unobservable realm. What Worrell suggested was that uh, science can know uh, about uh, relations obtaining in the unobservable realm. And in particular, it can know about, it can get plausibly uh, obtain knowledge about uh, the mathematical laws governing uh, the relationships between so-called entities at the unobservable realm. The basic notion, though, is that uh, we can have knowledge about relations in the unobservable realm and structures in the unobservable realm, and in particular, uh, the, the laws governing the unobservable realm. But we can't know about the, 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 the individual natures of the objects in the unobservable realm. And so Worrell put this forward as, again, a kind of compromise position between realism and anti-realism. There's some knowledge of the unobservable realm, but no knowledge of unobservable entities, right? just knowledge about relationships obtaining in the unobservable realm. So that's the basic idea of structural realism. Uh, pretty quickly, it started to develop into, there proliferated multiple different versions of structural realism. So there is an initial split between uh, epistemic structural realism versus ontic structural realism. And then within ontic structural realism, there are now uh, quite a few uh, competing views. And so, yeah, part of what I try to do in the book is just lay out very clearly um, what all these competing views in uh, the structural realism literature uh, really amount to, then explore how uh, dispositionalism ties into some of the internal discussions with it. Uh, ontic structural realism. Okay, yeah. So, so one of the points you make is that um, uh, nomic dispositionalism, right? Your your version um, uh, entails a particular version of ontic structural realism. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I make this argument in the course of uh, exploring a couple of fairly major objections that have been leveled against uh, certain versions of ontic structural realism. And what I argue in the book is that um, the kind of dispositionalism I'm advocating uh, leads, it can lead to the formulation of a new version of a moderate ontic structural realism that will sidestep uh, those, uh, those major objections uh, facing some of the existing versions. Okay. Uh, so there's a number of different, um, let me, let me, uh, let's see. I mean, there's, there are issues in with, you know, what the fundamental stuff is, um, and the f sort of substance ontologies. Um, and you also discuss the relationship between dispositionalism and natural kinds or natural kind essentialism. So, um, let me, let me, let me turn to the essentialism question, the natural kinds, um, which, which I thought was interesting. Um, uh, you argue that dispositionalism is, uh, in some way dependent on natural kind essences. 
Um, so could you perhaps uh, explain that relationship? Yeah, so one of the chapters in the book uh, explores a, a really important objection against dispositionalism uh, leveled by uh, Mark Lang and also Ann Whittle. Uh, and that, uh, that objection has to do with the notion that uh, we could quite plausibly do away with dispositions in favor of uh, foundational subjunctive facts. So whereas dispositionalists like to say that, you know, there are all sorts of counterfactual truths or subjunctive facts that apply to objects, and what makes those truths true is their causal powers. Uh, what Lang and uh, Whittle suggest is that uh, there are way, that one could do away with uh, the powers as sort of uh, middlemen, right? And just say that, well, there are counterfactual truths uh, that obtain of objects, like, you know, here's what salt would do if you drop it in water. There are counterfactual truths that obtain of objects, but those counterfactual truths are themselves uh, primitive, right? So the counterfactuals are what ground um, what we would think of as the laws of nature. And you don't need powers brought in as something that, that supports or grounds these counterfactuals. And what I argue in one of the chapters of the book is that um, this is actually a pretty substantive objection. This, this is a serious concern for dispositionalism. And the reply I develop uh, ends up relying on uh, a fairly robust conception of natural kind essentialism. So uh, basically what I argue is that in order to uh, diffuse this objection from, uh, from Mark Lang, what we need to do is argue that uh, dispositions are grounded in uh, the natural kinds of, uh, of objects. So, for example, that the electric charge, uh, you know, the negative charge of an electron uh, would, in the case of an electron, would be grounded in electronhood, right? It would be grounded in uh, the kind of entity uh, that the disposition is associated with. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm two different two different ways to go from there. Um, but let me, let me just continue with the natural kind. I mean, so... In, you know, in other areas of metaphysics of science, um, the whole idea of a natural kind is kind of question um, whether there are any uh, or even what, you know, various theories of what natural kinds are. Um, so do you have a particular version of natural kind that you are invoking here? Yeah, so you're right. The, the, the literature on natural kinds is, uh, there are so many uh, highly contested uh, debates going on here. So uh, even you know, most basically the question of realism, right? are natural kinds real or are they, um, are they theoretical constructs that scientists simply use for purposes of you know, taxonomic convenience, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, for, for classification purposes? Yeah, so, so there, there are lots of really uh, key uh, controversies here. Uh, so, of course, the, the, the kind of take on, on 
the sort of take on natural kinds I'm advocating here is certainly a realist one. So I'm arguing, um, I'm adopting the view uh, in this chapter that um, natural kinds are real and irreducible. Uh, but even within, even amongst realists about natural kinds, uh, there are all sorts of controversies about you know, how to understand the ontology, how to understand uh, you know, the, the breadth, right? So you know, there, there are some advocates of, of natural kinds, for instance, who say, well, sure, there are natural kinds, but you know, only in physics, only in physics and chemistry, but biology. Uh, that's a, a very commonly uh, defended view. Uh, in the book, uh, the sense I'm uh, entertaining is uh, what I refer to as, as robust natural kind essentialism. So the notion that uh, natural kinds are real, uh, they are uh, genuinely, you know, but they're, they're universals, uh, like, again, something like electron hood or you know, humanity in the case of beings, uh, and that they play certain irreducible explanatory roles. Uh, and one of their explanatory roles, and, and this is the, the, the one that's, that I'm sort of making use of in the book, is to uh, sort of ground and explain uh, the causal powers of an object. You know, why does a certain object have the powers that it does? Well, because that object belongs to a certain natural kind, and you know, it's, it's, it's essential to that kind that it have a certain range of powers. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, I guess there's a, there's a lot of different metaphysical categories that are being invoked. Um, so let, let me, the, the Mark Lang objection about with subjunctive facts, right? Um, I mean, I take it that, uh, one of the challenges there is that, um, not only do you or it does it seem that you could dispense with dispositions um, if you've got subjunctive facts, right? But it would it would seem like as long as you have an ontology of facts, um, what would you need any other type of truth maker for? Yeah, part of the part of what's tricky here is that. Um, so for some folks in metaphysics who adopt a kind of fact or, you know, some people refer to a state of affairs, uh, there are disputes about how to use the terminology here. Some people will adopt a kind of fact ontology where facts are, are real, but they're kind of reducible, right? So um, if you think of someone like David Armstrong and his view of states of affairs, he didn't really use the fact language as much, but um, you know, for Armstrong, at least the early Armstrong, uh, the early Armstrong for him, it, it seems to me, what's really foundational was, you know, you've got these bare particulars and the bare particulars instantiate uh, certain universals. And it's the instantiation by a bare particular of a certain universal, that's a fact. Right? And so in the early Armstrong, what's doing the, the, uh, the ontological work and the explanatory work uh, for him what was really these more basic features, right? The, the the universals, the bare particulars, and instantiation relationship. Um, later, Armstrong's a bit different, but um, by contrast, you know, if someone is, you might adopt instead of you, according to which facts are themselves, 
foundational. And what we think of as universals or as bare particulars, etc., these are just our mental abstractions from uh, concrete states of affairs. Um, so uh, the kind of view that Lang is defending, uh, at least at first glance, probably fits in better with that second way of looking at facts. Uh, the way he formulates his view himself, I think he can actually, there's a way he can remain neutral on that, but I think it fits in most easily with, uh, yeah, that kind of facts as fundamental uh, ontology. Certainly for Lange, uh, you do need to maintain that these um, subjunctive facts are foundational in, in a very real sense of foundational, right? That, that there are these counterfactual truths that obtain, and there, there are no additional truth makers for why they obtain, right? These are just, these are primitive facts uh, from, from his perspective. Okay. Um, but dispositions for you, while they are, uh, we need to posit them uh, for various scientific explanatory purposes. Um, they are not themselves fundamental or they are? I think they are, yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's the dispositions that explains why uh, some counterfactual truths are true rather than others. Um, okay. Um, and then, yeah, the, so, yeah. Okay. And then the natural kind essences um, explain why a particular object has the disposition that it does. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I should clarify that. Right. So uh, dispositions are fundamental in the sense that they're a sort of basic category in nature that we can't uh, reduce to more foundational uh, categories. So they're fundamental in that sense. That said, uh, I do think they're grounded in uh, natural kinds, right? So I think powers exist in objects belonging to natural kinds. Uh, so in that sense, um, they're, uh, yeah, fundamental but grounded. Okay. Okay. Um, and then, uh, again, you know, referring back to the controversies, you know, like in biology, for example, natural kinds. I mean, I know, uh, you know, some for some people, natural kinds are just, you know, physics and chemistry. You can give more or less pretty clear cutoffs about what belongs and what doesn't. Um, but of course, once you get to biology and more, more compl complex systems, um, that idea gets, you know, sort of torn to shreds. And, and if you're going to hold that there are natural kinds, you know, in biology or, or in, you know, social spheres, things like that, you have to relax this idea that the conditions for membership are going to give you clear-cut distinctions. Are, are you okay with that? I mean, does that, how, how would that, if you have like fuzzy natural kinds or natural kinds that have kind of fuzzy borders, um, uh, does that make any difference to uh, your the relation, the dependence of dispositions on the more fuzzy natural kinds. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's good that you, you emphasize the, the, the biological uh, angle here because um, the kind of view I'm defending in the book where, uh, yeah, you've got powers that belong to objects that you know, instantiate a natural kind, that, that ontology is certainly uh, easiest to run uh, if you're, you're restricting your focus to you know, the, the, the kinds that are under discussion in physics and chemistry. Um, when you get to you know, so-called higher level uh, kinds or alleged kinds, yeah, then the ontology starts to get uh, substantially more complicated. Uh, I don't really talk much, I mean, other, except for the, you know, the, the chapter that, that gets a little bit into philosophy of mind, uh, and the, the chapter on emergentism. Uh, in the book, I don't really talk too much about um, biological kinds and how I think dispositionalism uh, ties into, uh, into philosophy of biology. But I do have some some articles where I uh, I get into this to some extent. So I've got a couple of um, articles where I'm uh, again defending a fairly unpopular view, namely a kind of uh, a kind of intrinsic biological essentialism a view where there there are real natural kinds in uh, in biology. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah, because. Yeah, from what I from what I'm aware of, that's that's highly controversial to say the least. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, this is very much a, a minority position. Yeah, the philosophy of biology literature. Well, then let's. Um, you just mentioned emergentism, and I think we have we have time to to talk about that. Um, uh, so yeah, so how what what you introduce you know the notion emergentism in this particular case, and then you also talk at length about um, I think William Jaworski's uh, more recent recent version, the uh, sort of a neo Aristotelian hylomorphism type view. Um, can you could you say something about um, you know the relationship between your version of dispositionalism and um, uh, and then the hylomorphic variety of emergentism that that you focus on. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. So William Jaworski, uh, for those who, who may not be familiar with his work, he's a um, uh, he works in philosophy of mind. And uh, his main project has been to defend uh, a, uh, yeah, as you say, a, a kind of neo-Aristotelian version of uh, emergentism in philosophy of mind, according to which um, the notion of uh, structure or form uh, plays a really crucial explanatory role in uh, neuroscience and biology. Um, whereby uh, what we think of as uh, human cognition and the human mind uh, can be, uh, in a sense, uh, an emergent phenomenon, but still a natural uh, phenomenon, uh, and, and play this uh, kind of structural organizing role of a physical system. So, uh, yeah, Jaworski's project is, is quite um, wide-ranging. Uh, there's a lot going on there, but that's, that's the basic idea. It, it's a kind of new version of emergentism in philosophy of mind. It's a naturalistic emergentism, so he's trying to uh, run this account, this neo-Aristotelian account, 
you know, minus the traditional Aristotelian talk of a soul or, you know, teleology or things like that. Uh, so where uh, Jaworski's work links into, you know, my interests in, uh, in the book is that in, in formulating his theory, uh, Jaworski makes very explicit uh, crucial use of not just dispositionalism, but a particular version of dispositionalism. So earlier you'd asked me about, you know, some of these competing you know, versions of the view. Again, one of those competing versions is uh, identity theory. So uh, that's the version that Jaworski employs in his book, where again, identity theory is the idea that um, all properties are inherently both uh, dispositional and categorical. Uh, in, in terms of their, uh, their basic identity conditions. Again, it's a sort of dual aspect, two-faced view of, um, of uh, properties. And so that version of dispositionalism plays an important role in how Jaworski uh, develops and defends this particular, uh, again, naturalistic emergentist account of mind. So uh, part of what I, I do in uh, the final main chapter of the book is try to argue that uh, Jaworski's account would work better uh, if he uh, dropped the identity theory uh, version of dispositionalism as a part of his project and instead um, uh, pair his view with an idea that's been floated in the ontic structural realism literature in its relation to, to dispositionalism, namely that there is such a thing as dispositional relations or dispositional structures. So in other words, that uh, the notion of a disposition uh, cuts across multiple ontological categories. So not just dispositional properties, but also dispositional structures. And I try to argue in the book that if, if Jaworski were to use that understanding of dispositionalism and combine that with his new theory of the mind, uh, that would, uh, would sidestep certain uh, significant problems that uh, identity theory uh, dispositionalism uh, runs into, in my opinion. I see. Okay. Um, are you, um, so are you endorsing dispositional relations and, you know, this sort of cross- categorical version of dispositionalism? Um, you know, that's something I'm not sure of. Uh, I, I do certainly think that dispositions cross-cut ontological categories. I think there's very good reason to maintain that there are substantial dispositions, so powers that fall under the category of, of substance rather than property. I think there's a very good argument, a very good case to be made uh, for that. I'm less sure about the reality of dispositional relations or dispositional structures, but I certainly think it's an interesting idea and that, that, that it can do some explanatory work. And in particular, I think it can do, um, it can do explanatory work in the context of uh, Jaworski's uh, emergentist uh, project. Okay. Um... So I think uh, I was going to ask perhaps on material composition um, or substance ontology is, is 
of those two topics, is is there one that you would prefer to to tell us about your your view of? Um. Well, compositions uh, maybe an easier one to get into. It's it's one that yeah your listeners might be a little bit more familiar with. Okay. Um. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is one area where you think that dispositionalism uh, gets the better hand over its sort of categoricalist um, competitor. So maybe you can explain could explain that that why that's the case. Sure. Well, we'll just give a bit of background. So the the material composition debate. Um, in this aspect of the material composition debate, the one I'm focusing on, uh, has to do with the, you know, the ancient question of, you know, uh, are, are material objects infinitely divisible or not? So in other words, if you take a rock and split it in two and then take each half and split it in two and keep splitting and splitting and splitting uh, you know, until you get to pebbles and molecules and atoms, etc., you know, can that process continue on forever? Or do you eventually reach an endpoint? Um, and so, if you, so, depending on which answer you give, uh, yes, the process of division has an endpoint, or no, the process of division could go on forever. Depending on which answer you give, you then start to get into these different perspectives on you know, the metaphysics of composition. So, if, for instance, you say that. Um, this process of division has to have an endpoint, you're going to end up with some version of atomism, uh, where there's two main versions of atomism. One version says that uh, the process of division has an endpoint, and the reason why is that there are these um, point particles, particles that have no spatial extension at all. And so, because they're not extended, of course, they can't be subjected to uh, division. That's one version of atomism. Another version of atomism says, that, again, that yes, that the process of division has an endpoint, but it ends in objects that are extended but indivisible. Uh, extended but for some reason just cannot be um, broken apart. So those are two uh, versions of the, 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 the yes answer, right? That yes, there is an endpoint to the to division process. If instead you say no... Uh, that, that no, there is no endpoint to the process of division, then again, you end up with two competing views. One view is the theory of gunk, according to which every physical object has proper parts. And so, you know, for any physical object you look at, if you split it into parts, you just get new physical objects that themselves have parts. You split them up, you just get smaller objects with parts of their own, and they can just go on forever. Uh, the fourth uh, view on composition, the fourth main view, agrees that the process of division can go on forever, but it says that you know, the reason for this is not because every object has proper parts, but instead it's because uh, there are uh, extended symbols. So objects that are extended and divisible, but that don't have actual proper parts. So this was, uh, this was Aristotle's view on composition. Uh, composition, uh, sort of the extended symbols without proper parts notion. So these four main views, and what I argue in the book is that um, uh, each of those views, so whichever of these four main perspectives you take, each of those four views ends up favoring dispositionalism. 
either because it entails dispositionalism or more weakly, it sort of raises the probability of dispositionalism against uh, categoricalism. Okay, so could could you give one, you know, without going through all four, um, uh, in what, what in which way is it is it is dispositionalism uh, better off with I don't know with uh, with atomism, say, over categoricalism? Sure. Well, yeah. The, in fact, that that's the easiest one to, to talk about. I think so. So uh, atomism version one. So so atomism according to which nature bottoms out at uh, unextended point particles. Uh, that I think leads fairly readily into dispositionalism. Once you start asking about you know how should we characterize these point particles? What sort of properties would they have? Well, they clearly don't have some of the paradigmatic categorical properties like extension or shape or size. They're you know unextended point particles. So, what other kinds of categorical properties might they have? And what I argue is that that's actually a very difficult question to answer. Um, you know, there are in fact. So, what I argue in the book is that there are no uncontroversial examples of you know, purely qualitative um, properties in fundamental physics that we could attribute to a an unextended point particle. Uh, that in fact the, uh, the most plausible way to think about the properties of such a particle is to think that they're going to be uh, dispositional. That in other words, that these point particles are not going to have shape, they're not going to have size, spatial extension. What other kinds of properties can they have? Well, they're not going to have what we would standardly think of as qualitative properties, like obviously like heat or cold or, or color or something like that. So what kinds of properties does that leave? Well, it's got to leave some kind of non-dispositional, purely qualitative property. And in my view, there are just no examples of such properties uncontroversially in physics that a categoricalist could plausibly point to. Yeah, so, that, so that, that's the kind of argument I make with respect to that, that first version of the material composition. Okay, very good. Um... So I think we are running out of time at this point. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, what is on the horizon for you now? Are you um, are you responding to the apparently many critics of your um, non-standard dispositionalism, or, or what what are you working on currently? Oh well, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I, um, so I do have some projects in uh, philosophy of science um, forthcoming. So I've got a couple of papers on uh, substance ontology uh, coming out, uh, but I've been working more in some other areas lately. So I've got a uh, I've got a completed uh, book manuscript in applied ethics that's currently under review, uh, having to do with uh, Canada's new uh, assisted suicide law. So that's under review. I've got another uh, completed book on um, dealing with some issues on the uh, history of the, the modern Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, that's also under review. And yeah, so I've got um, various irons in the fire. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I hope to do some more work on sort of pure dispositionalism uh, in the near future, but um, yeah, at the moment, I'm mostly doing some projects in uh, ethics and uh, theology. Interesting. Well, sometimes it's good to take a step back and 
see how people feel and then come back to things after a while. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, I think we are, uh, our time is up, but I, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books in philosophy. And I, I enjoyed reading your book and, and being reminded of all these basic issues in, in metaphysics of science and getting a very, very nice, you know, sort of clear review of each of the debates, which was sort of a bonus as far as, as far as the, you know, my understanding of the book. So thank you for that. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed this. Thanks. You've been listening to my interview with Travis Dumsday, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Concordia University of Edmonton. We've been talking about his new book, Dispositionalism and the Metaphysics of Science, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.